Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. I told you about that um, headline for the story about the big increase in syphilis and gonorrhea. In the UK. This is true. Sure, story. I'd remember if you did. There was a big increase in sexually transmitted diseases. And the headline when? just recently last, yeah, last week. Oh, I right. mean, this is a genuine, this is a genuine okay, story. It's a thing. And the headline was clap for the NHS. Uh, you think you okay. you go. But before you lowered the tone with that, yes. we were discussing hidden tracks. Because because last week you had said that Setting Suns is the jam's best album. And I, I well, no, I think I, what I, I said fa- was it's my favorite. I think you, if you go back and listen, you said, the, anyway, whatever. I fact-checked it because I went back and I listened to them back-to-back. Back. All Mod Cons is a better album. And then I said... It's not, actually. With the, ex- mm-hmm. with the exception of... Uh, you know that thing where you're... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're not allowed to do that at home? You're not allowed to do that here, right? If now. I can't do it here, then where can I do it? In the privacy of your own bedroom. I or can go, outside on the street. I can go, mm-hmm. Okay, late appearance into the best jam album discussion the is double cassette. A double cassette of all mod in cons, the city. In the city, normal concert. First two. Oh, oh modern, modern world, world. First two albums. Okay. There's this a really funny thing. I, I don't know whether you've ever noticed this. On the front cover of This Is the Modern World, one of them is wearing a jumper that's got an arrow pointing up and an arrow pointing down. And it's, stu- it's stuck on with gaffer tape. It's not, if you look at it, you can see it's clearly not a designed thing. It's just like a jumper that they've got from CNA and they've stuck it on with gaffer tape. The arrow's pointing up and the arrow's pointing down. I'm the man at CNA. It's a good song by the specials. Um, but the but the crucial thing A double was, cassette, double cassette though, is too bulky. It's like, it's going to, that box is going to break instantly. Oh, yeah, double so, album on a single cassette. Yeah, okay. so it's a, but the equivalent of a C120. A very thin, very thin tape. That's going and to get it gets stretched. very, very, very stretched. Very, very stretched. Anyway, if I can get to the point... What is the point? The point was that I said, with the exception of English Rose, There I Will Find She, which is neither grammatically correct nor poetically on, on point. And you said, which of course... The, I, think, I think this is true, and I haven't checked it. I think originally it wasn't on the, the running order. It wasn't on the track listing on the album. It was sort of like a hidden track. And then on the subject of hidden tracks... I said, London Calling, of course, Train in Vain is not written on the 
on the on the sleeve because as far as I understand, the sleeve was all done before they did train in yeah. vain, and then they start because it's meant to end with Revolution Rock. They could arrive too late, but. That's a but, it's, but, it's, but it's written on, the, it's scratched into the outgroove. That's a kind of hidden track because they were just a little bit shambolic, as opposed <laughs> yes. to what became the art of the hidden track was we've got this really weird, freaky thing which no one will like. I know, let's put it as the last track. So then when you're on the CD and the last track lasts for 32 minutes, yeah. uh, you go, what is this? Oh, and, and it's because it's a hidden track. And there is a story that, that the reason uh, Elizabeth. Can I just is, say, are you recording all this? Good. The, Keep going. The, the reason that Elizabeth is a very fine woman and never did a thing, but the, the reason that that's at the end of, uh, is it Abbey Road? Which is the one which ends, and in the end, the love you give, it's a, that is Abbey Road, isn't it? Abbey Road, yeah. But then there's a the thing, and then there's that weird thing, the Queen Elizabeth song. The reason it's on the end was because they recorded it, they didn't know what to do it, they stuck it on the master tape, and then somebody forgot that it was there, and then it was like a kind of... Cool. You'll have, to, you'll have to repeat that because otherwise the, the uh, listeners yeah. can't hear what Simon's okay, well, saying. So, so the redactor has just said this, right, say it again. Eggs, 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 poached, boiled or fried. They're good for you. I don't know. I have no idea what that is. Tonight at Noon by The Jam, Where which is a track I don't know. By the way, do you remember when in a previous incarnation we did, we did our own version of a hidden track we went, we went silent for about a minute oh, or yes, two oh yes that's right that's and then right. scared people senseless because they were carrying in their shopping with headphones on and they couldn't find the stop button <laughs> so they were just carrying I'd on forgotten, forgotten they had headphones on I'd and then forgotten. we would go I know where your bins are or something like that and uh, scared people we should do that again actually what are you reviewing on this week's show I'm going to be reviewing No Hard Feelings which is a new film with Jennifer Lawrence uh, Nimona which is uh, an animation and Asteroid City which is the the new film from Wes Anderson is it my Nimona is it one of those can you hang on wait can you name the Knack's other hit no, no, it precisely. It didn't happen. And there we are. They were the new Beatles, apparently. Yes, according to them. Uh, Ashling B and Lara McDonald are going to be talking about Greatest Days, which Mark reviewed last week, but uh, people have been seeing this week, so we'll be speaking uh, to them. Uh, extra takes, more of this um, uncontrollable nonsense. Uh, the weekend watch list and the weekend not list, uh, five of which are going to be great and three you're going to hate. Bonus reviews are going to be what, Mark? Uh, the Super 8 Years and The Last Rider. Pretentious Moi is currently Mark Kermode 15, Mark Kermode 15. Boom. I don't know quite which way I'd like that I to would go. like to say that the last, the last one I won unfairly because you did leave in a character name. I wouldn't have got it if you hadn't said not Well, me. just, you know. No, I take, take, take the win. Take the win. Take the win. Uh, one frame back is going to be about Stargate. Is it about Stargazers? Yeah, because of Asteroid City. Oh, yeah. It's about Stargazers. About Stargazers. I thought it was about something else. Stargazy pie. Um, you can support us via Apple Podcasts or you can head to extratakes.com for non-fruit-related devices. If you're already a vanguardista, as always, of course, we salute you. Um, okay, so cheesy music time. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. Do you ever find yourself in a press show needing to jot down some bon mot or mot juste or whatever the heck you do in those things, but are let down by the quality of your notepad? Yes, until recently, I've waved goodbye to substandard notebook misery with this beautiful hardcover notepad signed by Simon Mayo and Mark Kermode, just in case I forget who I am. That is indeed a very, very handsome item. Is it an A5 case-bound notebook 
with lined ivory pages? Yes, 96 pages, 192 sides. The perfect size. So why not make a note? Make an, it's a, why not make an, emphasize, head to, why not make a note, because it's a notebook. I know, that's why I emphasized make a note to head a store. Head to <laughs> store. I was fine until you sorry, undermined sorry, me. Sorry. So why not make a note to head to store.comodandmayo.com now and secure yours. The rush is on. Um, Ed Hyde in Wellington, New Zealand. Um, dear uh, Cybok and Cyborg, I'm writing in response to your correspondence last week from Richard Hanoff. I hope this is right. He mentioned that he had married into a complicated Bulgarian surname who explained how his father had <laughs> kind-heartedly but bizarrely given him Terminator 2 on VHS yes, one Christmas yeah. when he was six. I had a similar experience. I grew up in Plymouth in the 1980s where my parents had a friend called Julian who was in the Merchant Navy. He travelled to and from places such as Singapore and Hong Kong and would often bring back films on VHS, as this was the time when there was often a delay of months between films being released in the US or the Far East and the UK. One day, I was homesick from primary school with a nasty cold. I can't remember exactly why now, but Julian was on shore leave and had come over to our house and, learning that I was at home, had offered a couple of his latest VHS acquisitions for my entertainment. I asked if I could watch them, and my mum replied offhandedly, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and so it was that at the tender age of eight, in the same way, in the same day, I watched the first Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, back-to-back -back with The Terminator, I was utterly traumatised by Arnold Schwarzenegger's eye-gouging scene, so much so I kept rewinding it and watching it again to check that I hadn't imagined what I had seen. Wow. As a doctor, I know that this is called en uh, enucleation, but that at the time I was simply speechless. That scene is seared, ironically, onto my eyeballs, and I can see it just as clearly now as I could then. It seems curious that I now live in Wellington and can see part of the, is it Weta Studios yes, complex from yeah. my house, where Terminator director Cameron is still busy making the Avatar sequels. Happy birthday to Mark for the 2nd of July, a birthday shared with my son Alex, who will be 11 this year. He would be delighted if you could give him a birthday was up if this was possible, please. Was up, Alex. Happy birthday. Fine tonk, days, people. And down with keeping nuclear secrets in the bathroom. And let's face it, we've all, we all, we've all have, done it. We all have. Who, who can honestly say they don't have that secrets. they've never kept nuclear secrets and plans to invade foreign countries in the, in the Kazi? Ed Hyde, fellow of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, Squadron Marksman 1876, Kingsbridge, Squadron Air Training Corps 1993. Ed, thank you. Keep those qualifications mentioned on your emails if you have any. Uh, correspondence at kermitamayo.com. Tell us a movie that's out that we can go and see that you might like or dislike. No Hard Feelings which is the new film starring Jennifer Lawrence, who is also a producer of it. Directed by Ukrainian-born American film and TV maker Gene Stupnitsky, who, has a, who was a writer and director on the US version of The Office, which I never saw, did okay. you? I heard good things about it. Um, also, his feature film writing credits include Year One and Bad Teacher, and he co-wrote and directed Good Boys. So, in No Hard Feelings, Jennifer Lawrence is an Uber driver, who is in danger... Okay, at that point, no. <laughs> Meg, Ryan like Meg Ryan is a helicopter, helicopter pilot. Jennifer Lawrence is an Uber driver. She uh, she lives in this uh, resort town where, you know, people come for holidays and people don't... Nobody likes a tourist. Um, and she lives in a house that was left to her by her mother, but she is in danger of not being able to pay her taxes and therefore losing the house. A situation made worse when her car 
is repossessed. So now she has no way of earning any money. She then ad answers an advert on Craigslist. You Craigslist? No. Well, it's a thing. Oh, what is it? Well, it, I only know about it from movies. It's a, it's a it's classifies, but it turns up as a device in many movies as a way of. And anyway, whatever. So, advert on Craigslist, <coughs> posted by the parents of a 19-year-old called Percy. He is going to Princeton University, but he has apparently spent most of his adolescence in his bedroom. And they are worried that he has no interest in anything outside, outside of playing computer games. they think games. hiring Jennifer Lawrence might help. They, you know, <laughs> have you seen the film? I don't need to. Here's a clip. I meant to ask this on the phone, but how old are you? Well, I know you were looking for someone early to mid-20s. I'm slightly older. Right. How old? I just turned 29. Recently? Last year. So you're 29? Last year. And how old are you, like, right now? One more year older. So 30? Yeah. 32. Mother! So the arrangement is that she will date the son. That's quite a funny clip. Man. And as a... Funniest clip in the film. Okay. And, um, and in return, they will give her a Buick. And she says, now, when you say date, you mean date. And they say, yeah, we want you to date him. And she agrees that she will date the heck out of him. Right. So the parameters are all kind of clear. Um, that what they want her dating to... That, so dating the heck out of somebody. Dating the heck right. out of somebody means, you know, means... The, yeah. And I see. So it kind of like Pretty Woman... If Richard Gere was a 19-year-old and Julia Roberts was hired by his parents without telling him, they're not really like Pretty Woman. If you've seen the posters, it's the picture of her and him and the word over her is pretty and the word over him is awkward. Yes. So pretty. And she's tweaking his cheek. She's tweaking his cheek. I have to say pretty awkward also pretty much sums up the whole of the rest of the film. Because what follows is this really misjudged, tonally all over the place, and frankly, sorry, what? Sex comedy come coming of age hybrid that takes all the ickiest elements from like risky business and, and weird science and tries to cross them with something which is, you know, at once has got, you know, enough gross out stuff to put in the trailer, but also touching, you know, so, you know, maybe a little bit. Low points include Jennifer Lawrence trying to get the 19-year-old, who looks like he's about 12, to have sex with her in the sea before a nude beach fight with some people who've tried to steal their clothes. The, the whole existence of that scene just made me go, sorry, what? Which what which film? Why? I mean, at least in, I mean, you know, I remember seeing Risky Business when it first came out, and there's a whole there are big problems with Risky Business. But at least Rebecca De Mornay doesn't look like she's Tom Cruise's mother, um, which lends this very very. So here's the 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 main problem is this: there is something really creepy about the fact that 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 Jennifer Lawrence is playing this actually, you know, quite convincingly believable, feisty young woman, you know, 32, somebody who's, you know, she speaks, she knows her own mind, she does her own thing, she, you know, she's very, very independent and you can believe in her. 
And the person who she's playing opposite is basically played like a character from Revenge of the Nerds. Like, not like a person who is a, a real awkward 19-year-old, but like the kind of 19-year-old that would have been in a movie like Revenge of the Nerds or one of the side characters in Porky. So it's like they're in two different films. And then you put the two of them together in this thing. You go, I don't get the tone of this. I, it, it's At times it feels really kind of like, okay, this is really, really tonally misjudged. At times it feels like this is... I mean, there are a couple of laughs in it. None of the laughs are to do with the central thing. I mean, that scene that you were just laughing at then, one of the people in that scene was and Matthew Broderick, who is credited as and Matthew Broderick. Okay. okay. So, and Matthew Broderick is there, which makes you think, I like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, I know and Matthew Broderick did a lot of other things after Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but when you have them in this kind of movie, it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a much better film than this. And I, I, I literally spent the whole film thinking, feeling either really this is, this kind of borders on being like really, really creepy and then just not very funny and... Jennifer Lawrence produced it or co-produced it, and I don't get why because she's a brilliant, talented actor who's got an, an amazing career, and I just don't understand the thing. Now, I accept that I've got a tin ear for comedy. Afterwards, I spoke to two other people who are completely not me, who are different ages, different, you know, and they all said the same thing. What on earth was all that about? Uh, correspondence at CodeMail.com. If you've seen it and or if you're going to see it this week, let us know what you think. Still to come, uh, Mark is going to be talking about... Uh, Nimona and uh, the new Wes Anderson film, Asteroid City. Uh, we're going to be talking um, about the Take That movie, which you reviewed last week, which isn't about Take That. No, although, well, it, is. although it is. Yes. And we'll be back before you can say the most thought-provoking thing in our thought-provoking time is that we are still not thinking. Who? Martin Heidegger a boozy beggar who could drink you under the table. table. <laughs> well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Mayo. That's Indeed.com slash Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 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 This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. 
such as? Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, uh, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on movie in the UK from March the 8th, as women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi are spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. An email from Matt Knott in Stevenage, LTL, MTE, member of the Blue Light Transept. Hello. Not, not K-N-O-T-T or not? K-N-O-T-T. Yes. Yes, as in John Knott, the yeah, no. old defence secretary. Wow. Well done. To whom Robin Day said, here today, gone, gone tomorrow, politician, and then John Knott got up and walked out. Is that right? Yeah. It's a f- Do you know what? You know, in uh, 2001, Kier Delay, of whom Noel Coward said, Kier Delay, gone tomorrow. That's also good. Which is also good. Uh, so the aforementioned Matt Knott also says hello to Toby Jones and Eddie Marzan. By the way, Toby Jones is in... Um, Indiana Jones. Splendidly. is in the, the Dial of Destiny. And surprisingly, in the uh, Indiana Jones film. And so, he gets to do a lot of stuff. He doesn't just he doesn't just have conversations. He does action stuff. Yes, on trains and everything. On trains and everything. So anyway, today is a, is a Toby, Toby Jones, Jones day. So further to Mark's declaration that smoking made him want to go for a poo, mm-hmm. I too had the same experience after having a puff. I also had the same problem when I tried to select films from Blockbuster. So much so that I had to watch many films solely selected by my girlfriend as I had to rush out to the Scottish restaurant opposite. Here's to Bluehead Feminist Movies. So there's an awful lot that working in that one particular paragraph. So he has a cigarette and wants to go for a poo. He selects films from Blockbuster and that makes him want to go for a poo. He might just have... Uh, intestinal <laughs> issues, I think. Irritable, irritable but the, but the blockbuster video, it's, the, it's back to the browsing thing, isn't it? That's the... Garth says, um, Dear Nicotine and Caffeine, as a proud recipient of toxicologists Tabagi, apparently it's a room designated for smoking tobacco and socialising, a Tabagi, I, I decided to look into Mark's experience with cigarettes. Both nicotine and caffeine function as physiological stimulants. And while the link hasn't been definitely confirmed, it's likely that both of these drugs will cause, will cause muscle contractions yes, no, no, of course. in the digestive system, yes. which may indeed cause some individuals a sudden need to try hard. And what was it the French phrase was, uh, coffee, cigarette, poo? Yeah, caca. Yeah. Yes. Café, clop, caca. That's the one. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I must add the obligatory "Don't smoke; it's bad for you." Obviously, of course. but obviously, do go do have a poo because that's okay. Also, other thing about cigarettes: the fastest way of getting your money into the hands of fascists. Thanks for the many years of entertaining and excellent uh, production. My brother um, once at a festival, uh, at a festival, a, you know, like a music festival, mm-hmm. the toilets were so bad he didn't go for a, he didn't have a poo for the whole festival. Yeah. 
Um, I have heard. It is. Uh, I didn't know similar. Is uh, such things possible? I didn't even know it was possible to have such bowel control. When I presented Channel Four Goes to Glastonbury, famously the worst television I ever did, oh. a celebrity of annoying uh, reputation, somebody who, in real life, is every bit where you'd expect them to be. Yes, I know this to be locked true. Locked themselves in the Winnebago that had the nice toilets and didn't come out for a couple of days. And so It's not possible to entertain yourself in a toilet for that amount of time. No, it wasn't the toilet. It was the whole large Winnebago. Just just turned up, locked themselves in there, and then so no no one was able to go to the loo. Anyway, I'd be interested to know as we're approaching, you know, kind of in festival season, whether, you know, is that, how, how common is that? Where the, I mean, obviously the loos now are a whole lot better. But to not have a poo for a whole weekend is extraordinary. Glastonbury last year had uh, sawdust toilets throughout because they've gone eco-friendly. Okay. Which I'm sure it's saving the planet. But on the other hand, I could stay at home. <laughs> Watch on the telly. Um, uh, so box office, top 10 in a second. But, uh, so a uh, big streamer this week. Oh, I'm just popping out for a big streamer. <laughs> um, have you streamed recently? No, but I could, oh, now you mention it. Have I you downstreamed it? <laughs> Certainly better than being upstreamed anyway. <laughs> extraction 2 is what we're talking about. <laughs> That's also bad. <laughs> I'm just offering... Ex Aurora says, I've just finished Extraction 2. I think it's not as good as the first one. The plot was a, was a mass. Yeah, the, plot it, the plot is a mass. Uh, the, di the dialogue... Actually says the dialogues were especially bad. I guess they were written by the same AI that Netflix always use and pretend that it was written by Joe Rosso. Uh, <laughs> Gary Sheehan, Extraction 2 is an irredeemably soulless experience. I remember being told that video piracy could harm future film production. Where do I sign? <laughs> anyway, once you... so Is that it? So we just got two negative... Uh Emails. On Extraction 2, yes. Well, I haven't the, watched it yet. My colleague, uh, Peter Bradshaw, in The Guardian, gave it one star and told, called it soulless. And I didn't think it was. I thought the action sequences were, were terrific. There were three really good action sequences in it. Um, I intend to uh, have an extraction uh, this week, <laughs> I think. At my, and I've had one, so I can now have a second. Yeah. Uh, in the because you are an extraction fan. That's right. Yes. Which was funny. Well, it was funny. Uh, number 30 is Inland. This is in the charts now. Yes, in the right, charts. Fancy. In the top the 30. Thing. I liked Inland. I mean, it's a very, it's a micro-budget production. It's got a terrific soundtrack. Uh, Mark Rylance had the script put through his door by the director, who at that point, if which I've read, was in his teens. And uh, Rylance read it and thought, this is worth getting on board with. And I think we are going to see great things from the director uh, in the in the, in the the future. Number 17, Pretty Red Dress. A Pretty Red Dress, I like very much. Uh, it's three central characters, guy just out of prison, his partner, their daughter. Each of them have secrets that they're keeping from each other. And it's a kind of transformative story about how they get this dress so that she can audition for a role as Tina Turner and how the dress has this this transformative uh, role. I think it's, I thought it was really, really good. Liked it very much. Number 10, Super Mario Bros. Full Stop Movie, comma, the... Looks like the last week of it in the charts. So that is 11 weeks that it's been in the charts. And it has taken a staggering amount of money which for a film which is so ordinary is really remarkable. It'll be back. There'll be more. Yeah. Number nine is The Boogeyman. Generic horror from a director who has done less generic work in the past and I hope does less generic work in the future. Number eight is Fast 10, Your Seatbelts. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I want it to be out of the charts now so that we can stop making that joke. 
Yes, that's true. Although repeating jokes has never kind of troubled us in the past. Repetition is a form of comedy. Repetition is a form of comedy. That's true. Also, the thing about Fast X is, I don't know if I can... Can I say this? If I can't say it, it'll get, can take it it'll get bleeped. When you've seen Mission Impossible, the new yeah. one, Fast 10 looks a little bit shabby. I know. It does, doesn't and it? And a little bit fake. Yeah, yeah we, can't, we probably can't... Can I say that? Well, we can say that we've seen... We can't say anything else about... I mean, I, don't, I, mean, I haven't said anything... No, you haven't, no. No. Did, you, although, did I show you... Although that bit where the thing happens. Did I show you the last page of... Sorry, just... You can't keep it in. The last page of... Because you and I saw... Okay, we could be talking about anything now. You and I went to see a film, and I sat next to you, and as I was... As, you know, we were doing the thing, I was making notes, okay? Yeah, you make notes because you're notes. a critic. And I do, so there's pages and pages of notes. That's the last page of my notes. Okay, I can't read a single word apart from, because you scrib because you're scribbling in the dark. Um, Blumenek, I can spot. You want to do something to your hat? <laughs> That's it, the last bit, you know, the last uh, bit is just the sign-off thing, of thing, but yes, I literally sat there writing expletives. Because it's so extraordinary. Because it was so extraordinary. Anyway, where are we? Oh, yes, number seven, Guardians... Uh, yes, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, is it Which seven? I like very much. Adi Purush, the Hindi film, is at number six? Yes, so I haven't seen that because it wasn't press screen, but I can tell you it is a uh, an Indian mythological action film based on the Hindu epic Ramayana. If anyone has seen it, please let us know. Greatest Days, the Take That Movie. That's not a Take That Movie. But we're going to hear more about it in just a short while. Yes, because Ashton B and uh, Lara McDonald are going to be with us shortly. Transformers, Rise of the Beasts is at number four. Not as good as Bumblebee, but better than all the other ones. Day, uh, yes, Transformers Rise of the Beast, that's a number four. It's also number four in the States, by the way. Number three here, number five in the States is The Little Mermaid. David Neumann yes. says, Mark and Simon, I know I'm a bit late with this, but maybe just in time, with The Little Mermaid still in the top ten. The original Little Mermaid is a film that is very dear to me, and I have never even seen it, in capital letters. Okay. I think this is quite interesting, so films that you are really important to you. But you haven't seen them. Bear with me whilst I explain. Some years ago, I remained at work whilst my wife took herself and the children away for a few days to Guernsey, where she grew up. With a friend and her young ones, she took the children to see The Little Mermaid. Child two became increasingly agitated as the film progressed, needing to sit on my wife's lap as the implications of the final act became clear. She burst into tears and howled to the whole cinema, but she'll never see her daddy ever again. Given the emotional resonance of the film, it is probably about time I readied a hanky to mop up my tears and watch the whole thing. As a 59-year-old man, I am surely not part of Disney's target audience. But if I had a small child to borrow, I would also be off to see the new version. Tickety-tonk, down with fascism, both historic and incipient. Uh, David Neumann, for use of the word incipient, which doesn't come up very often, thank you very much. I would like to know if there are... If there's anyone else who has movies that they are very important to them, but they've never seen. Yes. Well, kind of weirdly enough, an example of that is Exorcist for you. It's important yes. to you because we've talked about it a lot, but you have never seen it, and I believe you will never see it. Well, I, and I'm quite happy to see it, but I just think it's funnier. Funnier if you haven't. If I haven't. Yes. So you can still keep talking about it, and I still exactly. I feel as though I have seen every scene. <laughs> exactly. In it. Uh, number two here, number three in the States, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Well, there's a fascinating thing in number two and number one. So could it do the number one and then I'll do the... I'll okay, do well, it together. You, you, do you have some emails? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. 
well, I will therefore reserve reserve what I have to say about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Man, which I liked very much until okay. we discuss number one. So, so, you do so number one is The Flash, which we'll get to in just yeah. a second. So UK's two, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. We've had lots of emails along these lines. Okay. Callum says, Dear Toby Maguire, Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2099. After listening to last week's programme, I just thought I'd throw my two cents regarding the listener from last week's very literal reading of the moral of the Spider-Verse films being... Anyone can wear the mask, much like Ratatouille's moral of anyone can cook, which is later elaborated to mean not everyone can be great, but greatness can come from anywhere. I feel Spider-Man follows a similar thread. Not absolutely everyone can be Spider-Man, but everyone is capable of bravery. And even if these moments of bravery aren't spectacular or heroic, we're asked to be brave from time to time. We're all asked to be brave from time to time. In the larger sense of the phrase, we only need to look at the citizens of Ukraine or Russian newspapers defying Putin. In the smaller sense, we probably have a moment where we almost talked ourselves out of doing that thing, applying for a, a dream job or asking that hunk out, whatever. Very literal readings of morals in films that are essentially parables and fairy tales I find troubling. I felt that society has become increasingly cynical. And when these morals are read very literally and scrap all the nuances that those morals intend, out in the world right now, a young fan of the Spider-Verse may be inspired to act in a way that's brave. And how can anyone say that's bad? To conclude, I'll leave a quote from Stan Lee that was included after the end credits from the Spider-Verse film. Quote, That person who helps others simply because it should or must be done and because it is the right thing to do, is indeed, without a doubt, a real superhero. Okay. I agree 100%. Okay, number one here, and number one in the States is The Flash. Uh, lots of correspondence on this. We'll put some more in later uh, on, but for the moment. Uh, Darren Leithley in Dublin. Uh, as the summer heat broke on Friday night to persistent rain, scuppering my walk, I decided to go to the cinema, and for want of paucity of choice settled on The Flash. I hadn't seen a DC-related movie since The Dark Knight, and good grief, that's now 15 years and a whole Marvel cinematic universe ago. Yikes. And it's the influence of the MCU that coloured my response to The Flash. And the middle hour or so, well, I quite enjoyed the two Barrys coming to terms with and without powers and each other, Michael Keaton seemingly having an absolute ball as Batman again, and genuinely exciting action sequences. Unfortunately, this came sandwiched between two bouts of CGI set pieces that, like many of Marvel film before completely disengaged my interest. I was genuinely bored in the opening scenes, poorly rendered babies and all. That Ben Affleck instance of Batman was literally thrown from pillar to post in defiance of even the most comic book of physics, tested my patience to near breaking point. I was close to actually walking out. That boredom returned at the climax where I began to care less and less what happened. The visuals were more like a demo reel for the FX houses than any attempt at storytelling. I've seen other films that have more coherently relayed the notion of a multiverse far more wittily, trusting the viewer to follow what's going on. The Flash's psychedelic cat's cradle gone haywire was just silly. In short, not completely a flash in the pan, but neither wholly flashy, says Darren. So, um, I, I understand that completely. So, I think the interesting thing is that you have at one and two, two films which are doing multiverse stuff. And one of them, which is Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, is doing it in a really exciting, interesting way and, and, and is, you know, and, and is inspiring that email that we just had, which I know is in response to the thing about messages. And then you have The Flash, which, you know, there are things in it that are all right and there are things in it that are all over the place. Some of the special effects in it are unbelievably shonky, which is really surprising for a movie that cost that much money. And I think when they are right next door to each other in the chart like this, 
you go, okay, one of those is doing something interesting and is and has a and has a heart and soul, and the other one isn't and doesn't. And I think th- having them right next to each other, that comparison is made, you know, just all the more pronounced. When you said the thing last week, which was in response to, there was an emailer who said, you know, that, that these messages about anyone can be anything. That was what provoked that conversation. The point about the Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse thing is that although it, you know, it is flitting through multiverses at a rate of knots, it's doing it because it's using animation and it's understanding that that's what animation can do. It's doing it in a way which is completely visually involving, but it always has a heart. It always has at its central thing this message. Whatever you think about the message, it has that message. The Flash doesn't. The Flash has some interesting little bits. Michael Keaton as the bedraggled Batman is interesting. There are moments of Ezra Miller. I I don't get the Ezra Miller magic thing because I don't particularly see it. But the film is kind of empty. And I think that the comparison between, you know, one of them is full, full of ideas and the other is full of stuff is pretty clear. Uh, we'll do some more correspondence on Flash later on. And Ashling B and Lara McDonald will talk about their new movie, Greatest Days, in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so. would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again. This is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech-savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware, and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, questions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days, and everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash kermode. 
Now, we've got some special guests uh, on the show this week. They are Ashling B and Lara McDonald. They both star as Rachel. Yes, they're both the same person. It's a multiverse. In, it is. Oh, my goodness <laughs> me. What a, imagine if this was a multiverse film. Exactly. They both star as Rachel in the film Greatest Days, which, as we've already told you, is at number five in the top ten. Anyway, we're going to talk to them about their new movie after this clip. Oh! <laughs> Hi! <gasps> yeah. So... What's everyone fancy doing? Well, I'm not sure if you remember, but uh, our cocktails. I mean, you probably don't even drink this stuff anymore. Oh, so it's I like remember, all right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, why did we do this? <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, there's why. What do you think the odds are of them spotting me and doing that thing where they pull me up on stage and do a whole song around me? Oh, my God. So high. Very high. God, I hope one of them doesn't, like, lock eyes at me from the crowd because I will not be responsible for my actions. Are you? You've got a partner. I hear three of them are on brink of divorce. They're not, are oh. they? They will be when I get up there. That's a clip from Greatest Days. Delighted to be joined by Ashling B and Lara McDonald, two of its stars. Hello, Ashling. Hello, Lara. Hello, Hello. Simon Mayo. <laughs> it's, it's very nice to welcome you to, uh, to the programme. And you both play the same characters. So introduce us to... Well, maybe we should say right at the very beginning, this is a take that movie, but it isn't a take that movie. So how do yes. we best describe it? Lara, you go first. How, how do you describe this movie to your friends? Okay, so I would explain it as a jukebox musical. And if I was describing it to my friends, I would say it's basically Mamma Mia, but with take that music. It's not entirely about take that, but their music is what brings the story around and what we use as a tool most mm -hmm. of the time. But it's about these five girls who are all from Manchester and they're best friends and they they bond over their obsession with this boy band. And then we flash forward to 25 years later when the girls reunite for a reunion tour. Ashling, I think, is there anything left to say? I think Lara's just... Yes, I, I play a young Gary Barlow. <laughs> That's all. No, I, is there anything I'd say? I'd say if you're confused, Mamma Mia is a good reference, as Lara yeah. said, in that Mamma Mia isn't about ABBA. It's about another story and it uses ABBA songs to zhuzh us along. And this is the same. This is about a group of five friends and we see them in the past and the future and uh, uh, take that songs, zhuzh them along through life. <laughs> I, I I also thought there's another reference point, that Sunshine on Leith, the Proclaimers film. Uh, oh, I, I haven't seen you, Sunshine on Leith actually that. on my list. Yeah. no, it, you, And also there's a nice cameo from... Greg and Charlie in the same way that, three, you know, mm. the, take that guys, do a little cameo. Okay, so you both play Rachel. Lara, you're young Rachel. Ashling, you're just... Go on, describe it. What would you call it, Simon? Just slightly older than young Rachel. Yes, very good. Well done, Simon. Well done. Or you're just Rachel and Lara is young Rachel. Well, yeah, yeah, there we go. The other one. Well done. Yeah. What, what kind of a 16-year-old and what kind of a slightly older uh, woman is... Is she? Ashley, go first. What, what, what kind of a woman is, is Rachel? I think that when we meet, uh, and one of the reasons I kind of signed up to do this is because it's a little bit of a love letter to, uh, uh, and sometimes you watch movies and everyone's trying to get out of where they are in an external circumstance. Rachel is a pediatric nurse, an NHS worker, and she's a very passionate nurse, is very happy with where she is in life, but it's an internal struggle that something is sort of missing. Something's not quite clicking. And there's a fearfulness in her of trying to keep everything together. And I like the idea that there was a big swing in musical about this character that more people could relate to than not. And um, we then flash back and see 
potentially the the seeds of where her her character and why she ended up in that role. She's someone who tries to keep things together, as I say, and then we flash back to younger Rachel and we see her in a similar vein in her earlier years with her gang of friends where she's kind of similarly, but a lot more free than we see her later on. So we're like, oh, what happened? And so begins our mystery. <laughs> yeah, life happened, basically. Life which, happens, exactly. Yes. Um, Lara, did you manage to have... Uh, much time either before the filming or during the filming where you could get together with Ashling and discuss your character and the traits that you would have, maybe some mannerisms that you would both share? I think we both, I think Ashling and I are very similar. Like mm. we already had a big connection when we met. I think, I think you were saying most Irish people, we just seem to, we find each other. Yes. And then because of that, we got on very well initially. My mother had seen Lara do her star turn in Belfast <laughs> as a cheeky little shoplifting cousin. And she was like, Ashling, that's you. Like, that's, can we get her to play younger you? And I'm like, that actress will not be available for the next 50 years. She's so talented. And so when I heard that Lara was auditioning for the part, I was like, oh my God, her, yes, please, yes, please. She'd been in my mind and Jamie loved her and Katrina loved her so much. And I was like, oh my God, imagine if she got, she was playing little me. And there were times when, yeah, we, to be honest, we didn't have to do much work. And I suppose sometimes when the casting feels right, you yeah. don't have to do as much work. The one thing I will say is I was never prepared to wear contact lenses and Lara Madonna <laughs> here wore big plastic blue, blue contact lenses for the entirety of filming because she's a lot more of a, of a committed actress than I am. <laughs> I feel as though I should mention just, Lara, that uh, Ken Branagh came on the show uh, to talk about Artemis Fowl. Um, we, oh. had a, a, we had a great conversation with you in which you were an elf. Um, still is. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always and forever. And is it, is it true that you did work experience for him? I did, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, when I, I was working on Artemis and I was, I was 14 when we were initially filming and then we came back a year later to do reshoots. And um, in Ireland, we have a scheme, we have a thing called transition year where you do work experience and I think I like mentioned this in passing to him <laughs> about that. I, oh, I need to sort out doing something for my work <laughs> experience. And he just very casually mentioned, come, come do it with us. And so I went and did two weeks of work experience on Death on the Nile with him, which oh, was wow. the most surreal experience ever and very different to what a lot of my peers were doing for work experience. Yeah. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it so, so much because I got to work in every single department over the two weeks. And I just... I, I, it was such an education because I got to understand what it was like to be in every single role that I work yeah. with. And it made me very appreciative in how much I love my job, but it yes. also made me so grateful and appreciative of everything else everyone does for us. I think, and I know this is a film podcast, uh, so excuse me, Simon, for uh, <laughs> for saying this, but I think the one thing in our industry that jars a lot is that we all, in, in every different department, don't understand each other's jobs enough, yeah. don't understand the pressures of, being the accountant or being the DOP, the costume person, the costume mm -hmm. assistant, the actor, the supporting actor, the background artist. And th the one thing that's such an amazing thing to have gotten early on your career, because I only got that with my own show, yeah. where I had to experience so many different things. And my sister's a film costume designer as well. So I suddenly have an insight that I definitely didn't have early in my career about how hard it is or, or what things can go wrong and right, right around the industry. And as much of that 
as we could get where everyone learns different jobs would be amazing for our industry generally, actually. That's fantastic that you got to do that. Yeah. Almost everyone else's work experience is, you know, down at the supermarket or <laughs> yeah. working at the yeah. shop yeah. on the corner. And yours was working with Ken Branagh on Death yeah. on the Nile. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Can you, can you both explain how uh, the music and the, uh, the dancing, performing band, the boys, whatever we call them, how does that magic happen? Hmm. Uh, so you know they kind of jump out of cupboards and appear as, <laughs> as a and appear as a statue. Just to explain how that device works. I think Tim Firth explained it very well in that he describes them as kind of a Greek chorus in Rachel's life. But I think the way that we approach it is the boys. I think represent in this. I think they just represent music as a whole. And I think we don't realize how much we all rely on music to get mm. us through so many tough times and it's only when we look back we realize that that one particular song really helped us through that time or really understood and said what we were feeling and was able to comfort us for that and the boys are the actualization of that mm. in that when she whatever Rachel is going through throughout the film whatever the girls are going through throughout the film the boys are always there for her whether it be in an upbeat um poppy number where they are you know jumping out of cupboards or in a really comforting protective manner I would describe them as her guardian angels. They're just always there looking out for her to shelter her and protect her. It's almost like a gentle version of Drop Dead Fred for when they come back <laughs> later on in that she's pushed away this kind of, um, this coping mechanism she had as a child. And it was something that she looks back on as probably like an odd moment. And then suddenly when Rachel, adult Rachel, wins these competition tickets, old feelings that she's tried to repress come up and suddenly out pop her coping mechanisms again. The lads are suddenly, uh, you know, at the caravan site when she's trying to go on holiday and they're back for good. What was interesting was that the casting of them was absolutely incredible. Those five lads were cast in the original incarnation of this film pre-pandemic. They survived the pandemic. They're all dancers when dancers were completely out of work. And they're such a gorgeous group of men yeah. and they end up becoming a real... Like, you know, we had very little time to make this film. It was a lot of pressure. And in through it all, you had this gorgeous group of five dancers, actually sort of myself and Lara's people, yeah. really look after us because they're so gentle and kind that the, those five dancers and actors who play yeah. the characters. The way, the way you describe them, both of you talk about, I mean, they sound like, you know, to use a different style of language, they're like your guardian angels almost. Yes, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And they sort of became that during the filming as well. Yeah, definitely. Like there's such a, a good group of eggs. And it was funny, there's like uh, all my life I'm kind of surrounded by actors, but it was quite funny watching a group of trained dancers move together because dancers tend to move more in sync and actors kind of move back and forth with each other for the job yeah. or for the scene they're in, then you'll be like, right, fine, I'm off for my lunch. Not sure if you're on lunch yet, but bye. Whereas dancers wait around for each other and really hold each other. And so, yeah, they did become like guardian angels in, in real life as well. Was, was the singing and dancing just something that you expect to do occasionally in a movie or is it quite scary? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish it was more common. Yeah. I should do it more. Oh, my God. That part of it was the kind of joyful part of it. I think there's something to physically dance and have to learn dance moves is good for your brain to engage the left and right side of your brain to sing out loud it's why people do karaoke no matter what level of skill they're at <laughs> it's because it genuinely does something to your soul to be able to belt out a song at a level that you're not technically allowed to because of fear of the wrath of your neighbors so to be able to do that was quite joyful but not something I definitely would have ever expected from a film career truthfully <laughs> I feel as though I was almost in this film in a way because 
I introduced Take That on Top of the Pops a number <gasps> of times. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So, so I know it's not Take That, but it kind of is. And so yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of discussion about, did you see them on Top of the Pops? And they're very excited. So that was a good moment. I like that. Yeah. Oh so you goodness. introduced them for the first time. No, no, I don't think what it was the first was time. It? Very, very early on. I think I did it for Back for Good. You don't oh remember what they were wearing, do you? Because they had some outfits <laughs> when they were in their original incarnation. They had Robbie some... had and Robbie had some fantastic red hair and glasses. Wow. Oh my goodness! As I recall, anyway. But actually, because it's not, it is about take that because their music is all the way through it. It's actually far more about female friendship, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. at the heart of the story. And I don't even think just female friendship. I think looking back at your childhood friends and I suppose the question that lingers over rate my character as she gets the gang back together is will it be the same and I think we all have that with our old friends were we just friends because of geography because of our location because of our parents location our education is that the reason we were friends and the intensity of young friendships and when they sort of float away slowly but surely it's like a tragic death of a friendship and when you come back together no matter what gender or background you have, you're like, oh no, will it gel? Is it going to be awkward? Will we feel the same? We mean so much to each other, but can we work now as adults with all of our histories and stories? And I think that's the, when we re-meet the girls together as a group, that's the first, the first bit is the weirdness that it doesn't totally gel right because they haven't talked about this big thing that happened. Is that how you see it, Laura? Yeah, definitely. I mean, because... I was so much more focused on a 16-year-old reiteration yeah. of the girls. And it was just that pure celebration of that beautiful friendship of when Koki described it really well, of at that age, they feel immortal. They feel invincible. And you do when you're at that age that, like, your biggest worry is, can we get to this concert to see the boys? Yes. And how will we get home on the bus? It isn't about all those big existential questions. And so I think that it was just the simplicity of those friendships, I think, is what a lot of it harbors on in the 16 year old versions of the girls. It's just how beautifully simple and easy these are. But then as you grow up and obviously you learn more and you experience more, which we see in the 25 years later, as similar as certain traits of each character is, none of us are the same person that we mm. were however many years ago. Yeah, and sure. so because of that, will they gel? Like you were saying, will they gel? Will they be able to still, still be friends? Mm. But I think what's so beautiful about this film is that celebration of that part of us will always stay with us. Yeah. And so no matter what, there's always a bit of a 16-year-old self in every single one of us that just every once in a while needs to be brought out and celebrated. Mine gets brought out far too much. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley and Laura, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, and all the best. Thank you so much. much. And uh, thanks for being back for good. I don't know. Just totally throwing <laughs> well a button. Hey, that worked <laughs> for me. So that much. absolutely worked for me. Thank, <laughs> thank you, Laura. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Bye-bye. Laura McDonnell and Ashling B talking about greatest days. And I've I have slightly reappraised my uh, position of last You're week. You were a bit sniffy last week. Well, yes, I have done. I mean, I've watched watched the whole thing, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. And I just watched the last half hour again. And I was thinking, oh, I understand I understand it. I understand why people will love seeing this film. It isn't for me, but I, I I get why it... I don't think it's as good as Mamma Mia. I don't think it's as good as the Proclaimers movie, but I do think that they've done a very... You know, they've done a good job, and it is about female friendship, but as yes. Ashley says, you know, it's, it is slightly 
broader than that. And the colours are spectacular. I mean, we're just watching <laughs> that clip again. You said, is that a clip from the new Wes Anderson well, it film? It does look like Which that, we'll you know. talk about in a bit. The colour palette is there was, know, a, was there, great. There was an interesting thing, as I said, I, I watched it with the good lady Professor Her indoors, who I don't think has ever been a Take That fan. But she, what she really liked about it was the, you know, was the friendship between the group. And uh, as I said, I'll, I'll go back to the thing I said before. I turned at one point and I said, "This is rubbish." And she went, well, "Why are you crying?" And I think that that sums it up. Is it's, it's, it works, and it's got a kind of, you know, it's got a naive energy that works because actually it is in the end about friendship. I, I love the comparison with Drop Dead Fred, which is not a movie I've heard referenced in quite a long time. But that is a really smart comparison because, that you have, because you the, the drop dead Fred revolves around you have a fantasy friend as a child, and then you grow up, and the fantasy friend reappears, and it's about what are the things that got you through childhood. I mean, drop dead Fred is a, I know the people who like drop dead Fred really really love it, but it kind of it's got lost in the mix. People don't talk about it very much anymore. But it's about that idea about the the, fa the thing that got you through your childhood reappears in later life. What about if the thing that got you through your childhood is when you put on a particular jumper, you were Peter from Germany? But could you still get that? Have you still got the jumper? No, I don't think I haven't got the jumper. No, I don't think it would fit actually. But no, but I just wonder but, whether you had it as like a security like, blanket. Is that like the same as having a? Uh, an imaginary friend that when you that you pretend to be somebody else. I think it's like, and again, this comparison was made in the interview that when you said, "Who are the boys?" the band, whatever they refer to, and the answer was, "Well, it's music in general." The fact that we joke on this show quite a lot about the fact that I love the Rubettes and I will always love the Rubettes, regardless of everything I know about the you know the the, the construction and all the rest of it. Sugar Baby Love will always be my security blanket because of what it meant to me when I was 10. And and I think that's a similar thing. It's I could listen to Sugar Baby Love now and it and it it and it got it will get me through things in the same way that it did when I was 10 years old. Well, Peter from Germany is not very useful. I don't ever get I can't get through a crisis. <laughs> Peter from Germany carried a handbag and had a jumper. No, that was no carry a handbag. The handbag full of marbles was something else altogether. That was that was Oh, nothing. that wasn't Peter from Germany. No, Peter from Germany wouldn't have we a wouldn't handbag with marbles. <laughs> Why? He wouldn't be Why a part of that kind he? of thing. He's Peter from Germany. That's all he needs. I mean, is that nonsense? He's got a special jumper. The handbag with marbles was something else altogether. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry for confusing your Which I, weird alternative personalities. Right. And I spilt them at, um, in in Alloa, I believe, or at the Scottish <laughs> Crown Jewels. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Very that fair. sounds like a Smith song, doesn't it? Oh, I spilt my marbles in Alloa. Anyway, feel free to interpret away. Correspondence at Kovanamo.com. What else is out? Nimona, which is in cinemas now in a limited release and then on Netflix from June the 30th. Based on, and I hadn't heard the phrase, but everyone else, but science fantasy graphic novel, science fantasy graphic novel, by American cartoonist Andy Stevenson. The source focuses on... Nimona, who's a shapeshifter, who's an anarchic force for change, who teams up with um, Ballister Blackheart to overthrow the dominating institute. The source went from being apparently a high school hobby to a web project, to a senior thesis, to an officially published work in 2015, which was then optioned by Blue Sky. And then the option fell down when Disney bought Fox and Blue Sky ceased <laughs> Blue Sky? Empty Sky, and the whole thing collapsed and then was picked up again by Annapurna and now on Netflix but in cinema. Directed by Nick Bruno and Tony Quinn, who made Spies in Disguise. Riz Ahmed is the voice of Ballister Boldheart, 
formerly Ballister Blackheart, now Ballister Boldheart, which tells you a little bit about the way the character has changed. Aspires to be a knight. This is a kind of retro-future retro setting. So knights in armour, but science fiction fantasy is if a knights in armour society has grown up into, you know, science fiction. On the occasion of his knighthood, because he is lowborn, his sword mysteriously turns into a futuristic weapon and does something awful with terrible consequences. He is forced into hiding, having lost and replaced an arm, and meets Nimona, voiced by Chloe Grace Moretz, who presents as a punky young girl but is, in fact, a shape-shifting, can-be-anything. Here's a clip. Who are you? The name's Nimona. Uh, and how did you... Whoa! Yeah! Sick arm! Uh, did it bleed a lot? What? Did they let you keep the old one? No. Let go! What is wrong with you? Can I have it? What? Put that down. That is not for little girls. Little girls? <laughs> okay. How old do you think I am? I don't know, ten? All right, help me out. More or less than ten. Not a lot of kids in your life, huh? You, you know what? No, and I'd like it to stay that way. You have to go. But I'm here about the job. Job? What job? Oh, it's all here in my application. This is just a bunch of drawings. Very disturbing drawings. Oh, look, it's me. <laughs> On a, a rhinoceros. Skewering several guards like a human kebab. Yeah, do you like it? I thought a visual aid would really make my resume pop. So as soon as you hear Chloe Grace Moretz's voice in that, you know, because of the way the character, there is there is a touch of kick-ass about it. And weirdly enough, they also reprise Banana Splits, which of course appears in Kick-Ass in this. So the design animation, if you were just listening, you didn't see it. There's a lovely moment in that when she says, did it bleed a lot? And she starts to turn her head in this mechanical way that's actually, for me, is a... Is it? Is it? Is it? Yes, I think it is. I think I it genuinely is. But the, the, the animation style is interesting because it's, it's computer graphic, but it has an old-fashioned, you know, cell look about it. In fact, weirdly enough, I think in, the, in its design, it owes something to Cartoon Saloon, who do, you know, who, who, who I'm, I'm in love with their work. I think their work is great. I think there is a kind of echo of that when you see that, you know, it's, there's something which is old-fashioned, but also, you know, modern at the same time. It also has a debt to anime. There is a huge section of it which is kind of a riff on the Japanese kaiju traditions of, you know, really, really big monsters doing really, really big monster things. The thing that I liked about it is, firstly, it's, you know, it's, it's fun to watch. I like the visual style. It's, 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 it's very eye-catching. Secondly, I think those two central voice performances are very winning. Thirdly, this is the kind of movie. Had Disney made this movie, as you know, as opposed to it passing through and then going to another company, had Disney made this, this is exactly the kind of movie that Ron DeSantis would have called woke. You know, Ron DeSantis is trying to shut down yes. woke because okay, one of the central relationships is gay. The heroine is a young girl who can change her identity and her shape. The voice artists include uh, RuPaul, and the source material author identifies as non-binary, transmasculine, and bi-gender. So this is literally the kind of thing that Ron DeSantis would have gone out and said... I'm going to go and know, see this film just, just well, although Disney didn't end up making it. But, oh. you know, it's the kind of thing that is really deeply upsetting for those right-wing Christian wingnuts who believe that everybody should uh, have the right to carry guns and therefore be potentially able to kill lots of people, but not to choose who they are and who they love. And I think you should put Christian in inverted commas. Exactly. I mean, it's... The 
best thing about it is it's got all those things, but that's not the reason for liking it. The reason for everyone else to like it, it it's a lively adventure, which is, it's a story which is well told. The visuals are very eye-catching. Um, it's got a very good score by Christoph Beck. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I really, I like the fact that it's got all those, you know, it, it's very much about defining yourself and being who you want to be. And it's very, very open-minded. But the best thing about it is that that's not the best thing about it. The best thing about it is it's an exciting adventure with knights and science fiction and shape-shifting and, you know, these two characters thrown together because of this mad situation. And I enjoyed it very much. It's the ends in a minute, Mark. But first, it's time once again to step into our much-loved laughter lift. Oh, dear. Very good. Hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. The good lady ceramicist her indoors is threatening to leave me again. <laughs> again? Yeah, because, <laughs> it's a regular... Yeah, because of my obsession with wearing a new band T-shirt every hour. Okay. Wait, I said, I can change. Hey, I, what? I have to wear a... No, yeah. A new oh, T-shirt I see. I see. Wait, wait, I can change. Fine, 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 I can change. So I was thinking, was it a song, I can change? No, but it's just because you can change a T-shirt every hour. That's... Okay. That's what I was aiming for. doesn't quite work, that, does it? I think it does if you pay attention. Just thinking yeah. ahead to the summer holidays, uh, Mark, I'm certainly beach body ready. Okay. In the sense that if you're going to the beach and you've got a body, <laughs> you're beach body ready. I don't have fond <laughs> memories of every summer holiday. In the 70s, inappropriate Uncle Selwyn, to give him his full name, once told me in my insecure teenage years that if I put a baked potato in my swimming trunks, I'd attract more girls. He forgot to tell me to put the potato in the front, though. So, I don't know. <laughs> it's where... a lower quality of gag this week, isn't it? It's. I'm building up for a big finish. You're building up for a big potato. Yes. <laughs> I've... Is that a hot potato in your swimming trunks? <laughs> no, it's a chip. I've made life a little easier. <laughs> I've made life a little easier in these days of sunshine and vino, Mark. I've trained my dog to go and fetch me a bottle of wine. He's a Bordeaux Collie. Okay, uh, that, yes, there, there, that's good. I redeemed, redeemed. Oh, there's more. Which reminds me of the time when our dog, Shark, got lost on the beach. We were not popular. Anyway, what's still to come? Because you were shouting Shark. Well, it kind of didn't need saying. Yeah. Because it's funny, isn't it? Because jokes never sound funny in court. Pardon? I told you, it was a libel thing. I said something in a book. The editor said, you have to take that out. I said, it's a joke. He said, it's a funny thing about jokes. Oh, right. They never sound funny I'd, in court. I'd forgotten that. Asteroid City. All right. We'll be back after this, unless you're a vanguardista, in which case, I love how you don't care how you come across. We'll be back after this. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, in response, so back on the emails here, correspondence at kermanamay.com, in mm-hmm. response to Richard's tale of watching Terminator 2 at the age of six, this is an email, by the way, from Benjamin Russell, B A N G M L I S, second place grade four spelling competition, Harold Martin School, and he's in Concord, New Hampshire. Okay. Yes, Terminator 2 at the age of six. I wanted to mention at the time when we were both about 15, and my friend Amy came to tell me about the movie her dad had left for her to watch when he went away for the weekend. Right. I rented these films for you, he said, on his way out of the door. I loved them when I was your age. Amy said she wasn't quite sure if she could look at her father the same way after she popped one of the tapes into the VCR, something she'd never heard of was called Caligula. (laughs) What? It was well known in school that I had parents who wouldn't let me watch R-rated films until I turned 17. At a middle school party only a couple of years before, I'd been mockingly pushed out of the room during a viewing of Die Hard in order to, in quotes, protect me from the scene where the terrorists find a couple um, having a very good time in one of the offices. (laughs) So I was a little surprised Amy wanted to commiserate with me about this experience. I still wonder if she was telling everyone or if she figured I would nerdily know enough about the historical figure that I would be suitably appalled without having had to experience the sweaty footage firsthand. Anyway, the latter was certainly correct enough that it meant I was avoiding eye contact when we both subsequently reported to the science class her father taught, taught at our school. You don't want to watch that Caligula at primary school age. What, so what, what, what? What the, is it? Was is there? Was was he getting the title mixed up with something else? Is there a child-friendly version of Caligula? I mean, I suspect. Probably. I've seen many versions of Caligula. I don't think any of them could be described as child-friendly. Yes. Uh, anyway, Argle Bargle Wargle Dragon, which was my favourite yeah. location <laughs> message I once saw on the sadly departed Iwitter at Benjamin Russell. Um, did, Do you remember where that came from? It was it was Jeff Bridges going. <laughs> he even said a thing. Argle Wargle Fargle Dragon. And it's, what he actually said was, you should have stayed a dragon, but you okay. couldn't understand that. Uh, dear Peter from Germany and Henry from Manchester, this is, um, who is it, in fact? Simon in Amsterdam. Oh, Nick Nolte, sorry, who did I say? Jeff Bridges, Nick Nolte, thank you for... They are, you. but they, they, they are kind of the right, same. Right. Yeah, they, the same it's, the, it's the same impression, so... Uh, so, Peter, uh, Simon in Amsterdam, long-time listener, first-time emailer, but you did read a DVD of the week tweet of mine years ago. On recent travels with work, having exhausted all potential conversation topics, including what's your favourite vegetable, my colleagues and I came up with a game I thought you'd appreciate. The rules are simple. One person describes a situation Tom Hanks finds himself. Everyone else tries to be the first one to guess the film. Okay. Okay. So, um, Tom Hanks in a plane? Uh, plane. Is it called plane? It's, it's, it's the one where he lands the... the Sully. Sully. Sully, thank you. Tom Hanks in a boat? Um, uh, castaway. No, 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 uh, go Captain Captain Phillips. Yep. Tom Hanks is a child. Big. So it provided a surprising amount of fun, mostly taken up by everyone trying to think of more Hanks movies from which clues could be made. We're open to suggestions for alternative actors to extend the life of this game. Can I just say, no, it's, it was Jeff Bridges in Seventh Son, not Nick Nolte, just my impression sounded the same. Tickety Tongo for it. Up with Jason, Sanjeev and Toby. Down with messy head populist liars who are thankfully seemingly getting their comeuppance. Well, um, <laughs> other suggestions. Tom Hanks with a fish. Uh, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Tom Hanks with a fish. Oh, fish slash woman. Splash. Tom Hanks on a stag do. Uh, bachelor party. Tom Hanks is uh, in a falling down house. 
the prop, the something, the money pit. Tom Hanks is a detective. Old fashioned. Turner and Hooch. Well, I've got Dragnet here. Oh, Dragnet, of course. It's a good and Tom Hanks in the suburbs. Uh, burbs. Yes, there you go. Yeah. So it may well be this is a short-lived game, but anyway, and there may well be other actors. Yeah, but I mean, it's, with Tom Hanks, it's kind of, it's an easier thing. If it was, you know, Jeff Bridges in a diner, it would be harder. Yeah. Anyway, Asteroid City uh, have, has already been mentioned a couple of times. I saw a lovely still from it and thought, there you go, we're winning. Waz, where's Waz, <laughs> Waz, Waz Anderson? Waz Anderson. Just That's gonna, what all his friends call him, Matt. Uh, if I'm not going out for a stream, I'm going out for a Waz Anderson <laughs> Anyway, tell us about Asteroid City. Okay, so... Okay, um, you, don't, you don't like it. I can tell already that you don't like it. How can you tell that? Because you went, okay, so, you, so you've already got... Ugh. All right, so, opens in boxy black and white, four by three, uh, Brian Cranston as the host, okay. who is introducing you behind the scenes of a play, which we're going to see from start to finish the creation of it. Um, created by uh, an author, Conrad Earp, played by Ed Norton, and it is to be set in the American Southwest of the mid-50s, and it's going to address infinity, and I don't know what else. Cut to widescreen, full-color, massively color-saturated titular town, Asteroid City, in the mid-50s, where the drama is that a group of people are converging there for a conference of young stargazers and space cadets. At the very beginning, we see the town, and the town basically consists of a motel, a cafe, a, a half-finished bridge, an observatory, and a crater created by the asteroid. I think it says Asteroid City Population 80-something, so it's very, very small. And through the main street, or indeed the only street of the town, at regular intervals, race cops and robbers like they're on a Skelextrix track. So everything is very, very Wes Anderson, very artificial, very much like a set. They turn up there, the cast is incredibly starry. I mean, the likes of, you know, Tilda Swinton, uh, Jeffrey Wright, uh, Jay Schwartzman, uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson. So Jason Schwartzman plays this central character who is a war photographer who arrives with his family. He also has in a Tupperware box the ashes of his wife. He hasn't yet told his children that their mother is dead. And when they're in a diner, his eye is caught by Scarlett Johansson and her daughter. Here's a clip. You took a picture of me. Uh-huh. Why? I'm a photographer. You didn't ask permission. I never ask permission. Why not? Because I work in trenches, battlefields, and combat zones. Really? Uh-huh. You mean you're a war photographer? Mostly. Sometimes I cover sporting events. My name is Augie Steenbeck. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with that? That picture? Huh. Well, if it's any good, I guess I'll try to sell it to a magazine, now that you mention it. Midge Campbell. Eating a waffle. He's got a pipe in his mouth, which yes. is why he's speaking in a slightly... Because speech. he's in a Wes Anderson film. And everyone will talk like, like that all the way through the film. So it's all very, very arch. None of it, you know, realistic. Although, oddly enough, during the, all the stuff with the, with the television wraparound, which they keep going back to, and which the, the, the people that we see there being those characters are actors playing 
those characters, talking about the development of the characters in a way that's meant to kind of evoke the heyday of the actor's studio. So there's a connection between Scarlett Johansson's character and Marilyn Monroe, for example. She keeps talking about the fact that she's that she has re- abusive relationships, but in fact she has a great talent for comedy. Blah, 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 blah. Co-written by uh, Wes Anson and Roman Coppola, absolutely littered with very, very Anson-esque, you know, people saying gadzooks and that sort of stuff. And a very, very starry cast, full, I mean, completely full of uh, celebrity cameos, uh, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, (coughs) Margot Robbie, Jarvis Cocker, I mean, everywhere you look. So... The whole thing has the air of... Jarvis Cocker was a standout name there. In term, not in, he's not a, as big a star, but... Yeah, but he, well, he's, he's done stuff with, with Anson before. So it's just... But there's, everywhere you look, there are people... Oh, get that. Here is the thing. Um, how one feels about Wes Anderson movies is, is often slightly conflicted. Everything... The way in which Wes Anderson does... I always said this thing about the great... The Wes Anderson outtakes reel, you know, the gags, the bloopers reel would be somebody sitting in a perfectly formed corduroy suit at a desk and a pencil is slightly on the shonk and everyone falls about laughing because, you know, everything about his thing is he's, it's created like a miniature world. And sometimes this works really well. I thought Grand Budapest Hotel was really, really funny. I'm a big fan of uh, Royal Tenenbaums. Every now and then he does stuff that, you know, that really feels like it has heart and soul. Also, at the other end of it, you have films like French Dispatch, which was just unbelievably tooth-grating. This isn't as tooth-grating as French Dispatch, but I found it sorely patience-testing. And the reason I did was it felt like it's something that was so full of its own construction and its own confection and its own color coding that you you know that you saw then in terms of the you know the oversaturated colors that what it completely forgot to do was to actually have any heart. Now, weirdly enough, then what happens is that the father-in-law, played by Tom Hanks, has oh. to arrive because there is this whole... I mean, Tom Hanks, who is not the kind of person who does stuff that doesn't have heart. I mean, Tom Hanks is literally, I'd like my movie to have heart. Let's get Tom Hanks, yes. because that's what he brings. Even Tom Hanks can't raise this above the level of the whole film conducted like somebody, you know... Have you ever heard Mink DeVille? Um, Spanish Stroll. Spanish Stroll. Finger on your eyebrow, left hand on your hip. And I can imagine the whole film being directed with somebody with their finger on their eyebrow make and their left hand on the arch. And it's that thing about the gap between quirky and irksome is really, really thin. And this, for me, tipped right over into irksome. And then there's a moment in it in which they play... Um, do you remember Mars Attacks? Yes. You enjoyed Mars Attacks, right? Yes, I haven't seen it since, but there you Mars go. Attacks is really good fun. I mean, it's completely all over the place and it's a mess, but in it, that Slim Whitman Indian love call, the yodeling, is used to make the aliens' heads explode. In this film, it turns up in the background and it immediately made me think, I really enjoyed Mars Attacks. It's a total mess and it's got that weird bit about Tom Jones at the end singing It's Not Unusual While the Birds Come and Land on this thing and I don't know what was good, but I I just want this film to 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 exhale. You know that film Waiting to Exhale? I I found myself sitting through Asteroid City feeling sometimes, oh, that's intriguing. Sometimes, oh, this boxes within boxes, they're actors playing actors, playing actors and discussing them. And sometimes just like, okay, enough, enough of the sixth form 
just enough. It's the most, I think it's the most Wes Anderson movie Wes Anderson has ever made. And I think it's made me realize that actually what I love about Wes Anderson movies is when they step outside of the Wes Anderson box. But this has stepped right into it. And like that celebrity I told you about Glastonbury mm -hmm. locking themselves into the Winnebago, this has locked itself into the Winnebago of Wes Anderson films and it ain't coming out even if you're desperate for a poo. Put that on the poster, see what happens. Correspondence at kerbinandmayo.com uh, once you've seen it and uh, tell us what you think. As far as what's on uh, is concerned this week, this is where you send us information about your uh, cinema-related uh, activity. Yeah. By the way, this week I, um, I was doing a book festival in Southwold and the, and the book festival festival was called Slaughter in Southwold because it was like a crime <laughs> festival. Uh, and it was great. And hello to everyone who, who, who came along to that. Anyway, and at the end, this woman said that her son-in-law was making a movie. Right. And it was his first ever movie. And I said, okay, well, in which case, get him to send us a voice note. So, so he did? No, I don't know. Oh, fine, he, no, he hasn't yet. But okay. I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that we need. Yeah, just, exactly. just tell us your stuff and send it to correspondence at kerbidameo.com. For example, like this from Malika, who's from... Uh, Chinichita. Hello, Simon and Mark. This is Malaika from Chinichita Italian Docs, a season of powerful documentaries screening in London's Bertha Dock House on the 24th and 25th of June. The films portray everything from Italian nurses struggling to find employment to a celebration of the famous Italian protest song Bella Ciao, all presented as UK premieres and with the filmmakers joining for Q&As. Don't miss it. From the 11th to the 28th of August, the 31st Chichester International Film Festival will bring the magic of film to the picturesque city of Chichester, launching with three open-air screenings at the iconic Priory Park. The festival will offer a diverse range of strands, including the captivating Kate Blanchett, luminary Jean-Luc Godard, and many others. There'll be silent films accompanied by live music performances. Plus, you can join renowned actors and industry experts for engaging talks and exclusive Q&As. Celebrate this beautiful art that we all cherish. Visit chichtafilmfestival.co.uk. That was Malaika from Chinichita and Walter Francisco. What a name. Yes. Uh, cinema director and programmer about the Chichester International Film Festival. So send us your 20-second voice note, something which Walter, I think, exceeded considerably. But anyway, keep it excited. I'll tell you my two Chinichita things. And send your voice note about your event anywhere in the world to correspondence at kerbinandmayo.com. What is that? Well, two of them. Firstly, Caligula... Out of time, by the way. I'll be quick. Caligula was filmed at Chinichita. And secondly, that's in the, the, the studios, as opposed to the thing. And uh, secondly... One of Ken Russell's favourite stories, he came out of Chinichita, a Rolls Royce pulled up, the door threw open, and a bloke said, Mr. Russell, Mr. Russell, here in Italy, they call me the Italian Ken Russell. It was Fellini. And that's the end of Take One. This has been a Sony Music Entertainment production. The team was Lily Hamley, Ryan O'Meara, Sancho Panza, Gully Tikel, Michael Dale, Beth Perkin, and Simon Poole, as ever, the redactor. Mark, what is your film of the week? Nimona. Thank you ever so much for listening and downloading this particular podcast. There will be another... Well, in fact, there already is Take Two, which has landed alongside uh, this particular... <laughs> Simultaneously. Yes, that's right. It's, it's already there for you to enjoy. We and haven't recorded it yet, but we're sure it's fabulous. It's going to be great. And Take Three will be with you on Wednesday. Mm -hmm.